When you're parenting, you're often practicing patience and perspective taking and, you know, developing close connection. And those kind of skills, those interpersonal skills are really helpful in the workplace. So mm. even though you're pressed to step out of one role, which kind of feels like you're taking away, if we sort of change our frame of mind and see it as an opportunity to build skills that can beneficially feed back into the role that we're stepping away from, it offers us this expansive perspective that is, is really helpful. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu back with Mind Rolling. And I have a, a wonderful, potential new friend, I think, mm. Yael Schoenbrunn. Uh, Yael, uh, she teaches at uh, Brown University. She's a clinical psychologist and specializing in relationships, which is funny, Yael, because... We are about to do a retreat. We used to do retreats with Ramdas in Maui until he died three years ago. But we've continued and we bring all of our wonderful friends from back in the day, Jack Cornfield and people like that, Krishnadas. And uh, so the theme this year is relationship, interconnection and, and interbeing. So, yeah, this is just perfect timing. So uh, just before we, we got on, we were just, oh, with never mind anything. There's a wonderful book, which doesn't look so good because I put a lot of little markers in there. <laughs> Work, Parent, Thrive. And uh, we're going to talk about this book because it has a lot of uh, really great information to help people on all levels, not just uh, parenting. Uh, I got what, I mean, I'm not... I am a parent, but I haven't been doing much parenting like this, you know, since uh, quite some time. So as I, I, I asked, uh, I asked you, do you know who Ramdas was? Just because more around, because I'll reference him or something, you know, as I did, I was thinking about it when I was reading the book. And she said, yeah, you said, yes, yes, but I'm no expert in Buddhism and Hinduism or probably any isms, because uh, <laughs> I said, well, that's great. And I was going to say to you in that moment, I said, well, let's leave it to when we're live, is that when I went to India, uh, I had, in a different way, a similar notion. I was meeting Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and uh, I thought, okay, I'm meeting a Hindu guru. I got to ask let, let me get a mantra. I figured that would be the right thing to do. Anyhow, the long and the short of it is all he talked about was Christ. Okay. <laughs> nothing about Hinduism, Buddhism, nothing. Of course, he didn't teach, but in the same breath, I wasn't ready for, I wanted to use a mantra to meditate. He said, meditate like Christ. Many people who are listening, they know this story because I've told it a million times, but it's a beautiful story in that, he all he would say over and over and over, there is only one thing going on. So, and when you said to me, I'm more uh, studied in in science and so on. Uh, of course, I love the Dalai Lama and the work he's doing to bring together the ancient wisdom of of Tibet 
and proving it out through neuroscience and, and, and experimentation. Uh, so he's bringing it all into, yeah, there is only one thing going on in this universe and it's expressed many different ways. I love that. I love that. And, you know, one of my favorite things as a social scientist is discovering that so much of what we are finding in the laboratory just confirms what ancient Eastern philosophy has known for millennia, which I think is so powerful and just really proves that these truths are true and they've always been true. And yet we kind of need to keep discovering them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's wonderful what's happening, actually, in that respect. So tell me a little bit about you and how you came upon the path that you're on right now and how you basically, because the guts of this book is there is a different way, is you saying there is a different way, a different perspective that we can take that can um, transform the way we work and, and, and parent and have relationships and, and thrive rather than uh, be overcome, overwhelmed. And so how did this all dawn on you when you were a young woman? And, you know, I asked people, what are the transformational points when you realized what you're being fed isn't exactly the truth? Yeah, yeah. I love that question. Although I'd like to argue that I'm still a young woman. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well into my middle age. I was talking um, about teenagers. They're fair, fair. Uh, yeah, so this the the sort of origins of this book are really at the transformative point when I become became a working parent myself. So I was trained as an academic clinical psychologist and was well on my path to you know into academia. I was in my postdoctoral fellowship on a grant and feeling pretty confident that I could do this whole working parent thing. Right, I already kind of had my feet deep into work and felt pretty confident that. I could have a flexible career. I loved it. I had a really understanding of progressive workplace. I had a supportive partner. And lo and behold, I became a parent. And, and I loved being a parent. But it turned out that all these expectations that I had were actually pretty hard to follow through with in terms of feeling happy and content and engaged in these two roles. And so I started reading everything I could get my hands on from the bookstore. And what I found there was really a lot of dualistic thinking that, you know, these roles push against each other. And unless the structures of our society support us better, there's no way that we can make space because they compete against each other. And for me as a clinical psychologist who had expertise in relationships, this felt like it wasn't really getting to the heart of what my experience was because it didn't really touch on the relationship between our roles or on the psychological experiences that I was having, sort of the identity shift and and sort of this fundamental truth that that felt really real but wasn't being talked about, which is that no matter how well the structures are doing to support us, there's this kind of fundamental human experience of competing desires. Like I wanted to be full in my work and I wanted to be fully in my parenting role all the time, but I'm only one person. So I can't do both at the same time, a hundred percent of me. Um, and that just seemed like a human dilemma that wasn't really getting talked about. So what I did was I actually turned to the academic literature, uh, the science of working parenthood. And I found this very cool construct called work family enrichment, which sort of exists in, in sort of alongside work-family conflict, which is most of what we talk about in the modern public conversation in the public domain. 
Um, and But nobody was talking about this sort of, you know, in the news media, this idea that the two can actually enrich each other, but it kind of fit mm. into this very yin-yang concept, this non-dualistic idea that the things that we think of as competing actually serve to balance each other out. And so, so at the time that I came upon this construct of work family enrichment, I was also my brother who was very into Taoism at the time started telling me, you know, you're talking about these things and they sound very Taoist in nature. You should start to look into that. Mm. So I started reading a lot of Taoist literature and listening to a podcast on Taoism. And it just kind of woke me up and got me super excited to think about the ways that we our roles actually exist in relationship to one another in a much more um, non-dualistic and and nuanced way than we often think about or talk about. And so I started doing interviews with working parents and it turned out that, you know, people, when they were sort of prompted to think about the relationship between their roles actually found that there was a lot more to it than just conflict. But they, Mm. most of the time when I would interview people, they would say, oh, I never thought about it that way before. But as soon as I prompted them to think about uh, enrichment, how their roles helped one another, they would sort of start to come up with all these various ways that the s- skills that they developed in one helped the other and that they found stress buffering effects and that there was more meaning and purpose because they were involved in two different roles, even though the roles were each very demanding. And so that is kind of what gave rise to this book. This It's sort of an opportunity to talk about the relationship between our roles in a very different way than we mostly think about it or experience it, or or certainly that we talk about it. And that using both ancient Eastern philosophy and modern science, we can really expand how we understand and how we experience these roles. That's my hope anyway. Mm. No. uh, And going back to Ram Dass, which is a a reference point for me. Well, he was a, a child psychologist. That was he wrote one of the textbooks that are, I think are still used in universities. Uh, but later on, after he went through his whole um, transformation from psychologist, Harvard professor, and uh, psychedelic drug experimenter, uh, he very much talked about roles. That was a, a big point of conversation for mm-hmm. him. And recognizing the role you get into, that you get lost into. And the idea was to wake up so you understood behind the role is, is the, 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 the Buddhist called, you know, true nature, is your true nature, and so on. So, uh, yeah, this, this is um, the way that you're approaching this, I found really great because it's, it's very plain speak about that reality. Um, and uh, so in the book, you talk about shifting, approaching working parent, parenthood with daily lives. Now, I have a, a number of friends with very young children uh, and uh, that I, meet, I met through the foundation that we have for what we're doing in the podcast network. And I, I easily see and go back to when I had that dual role. And uh, it's the level of potential for exhaustion and a, a way that you sort of can easily give up every other part of your life is, is really, really uh, dramatic, actually. 
So, in fact, I told one one of the mothers who lives nearby me here, I said, I'm talking to someone who I really believe might be able to help you. So you'll listen to this podcast when it finally comes out. Um, so the, the idea that this role in particular of parenting is born out of love. And the role that we play in terms of uh, earning what we need to earn our work life as that is everybody's uh, bottom line. Everybody's got to do it for the most part, everybody. Uh, and the way that they can be completely complementary is something, as you just started to describe, but I'd like you to describe it a little more, maybe in real-world uh, terms, uh, just your own experience with it. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll sort of start with a little bit of the this sort of conceptualization that I offer in the book, which is that there's there's kind of three distinct paths that I think about people being able to travel in which work can enrich parenting and parenting can enrich work. And the first one is what I call the skill transfer. So that's the idea that, you know, if you have to work, it means that you're going to be pressured to step out of your parenting role. But when most of us step into our work life, we're developing skills, we're honing skills. And whether, you know, you're counting change or serving customers with patients or asking provocative questions or dealing with technology, you're developing skills that can actually really enhance your parenting because you can teach your children those things. You can ask mm -hmm. them those questions. You can, um, you know, teach them to carry a work task to its final conclusion and, and sort of not give up. Same thing goes in the opposite direction. When you're parenting, you're often practicing patience and perspective taking and, you know, developing close connection. And those kind of skills, those interpersonal skills are really helpful in the workplace. So mm. even though you're pressed to step out of one role, which kind of feels like you're taking away, if we sort of change our frame of mind and see it as an opportunity to build skills that can beneficially feed back into the role that we're stepping away from, it offers us this expansive perspective that is is really helpful and which by the way you know when we can lose the guilt and step fully into whatever role we're in we can actually recharge and come back to the role that we've stepped away from with more creativity with more energy with more enthusiasm okay so the second path is what i call the stress buffering effect and that's the idea that regardless of whatever role we have like we're going to encounter stressors right at work we experience disappointments and frustrations and people that we don't want to work with in parenting our children hit developmental milestones that are really painful and they eventually grow independent and that feels like a loss and so what we can think about in this path is that having multiple roles gives us opportunity to balance a stressful experience in one role with a positive experience in another, which helps to kind of take the edge off. So if I have a tough day at work, I can go home, mm. have a hug with my kids or a snuggle with them or a laugh with them. If my kids are being, you know, dismissive of me or um, are going through a phase where I'm just feeling pretty incompetent, I can go to work and experience a sense of mastery and, and uh, success. Okay, and then the third path is what I call the additive path, and that's this idea. So psychologists have lots of different ways of uh, categorizing happiness. So it could be experiences of pleasure, but one other way that we think about happiness is meaning and purpose. And this is the more enduring uh, 
kind of the more important way that humans experience happiness. Like if you have a sense of purpose and meaning, it sort of helps you to feel a more overarching sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in life. So people who have a greater sense of purpose tend to be happier. And this is research that goes back as far as the 1800s, where when a French sociologist was looking at predictors of suicide, he found that the more roles that people have, the more sense of purpose and obligation that they have, the lower their risk for suicide. And that kind of research has really proliferated where we really understand how important a sense of meaning and purpose is. And what we know is that the more roles that we occupy, the better we are at experiencing a sense of more enduring, sustainable, reliable purpose. Because, you know, if, if you know, for example, our ch- children grow up and they go off and they're independent, now we don't feel like our sense of purpose is fulfilled by raising children anymore. We can sort of counterbalance that by kind of spreading our existential eggs into other baskets where we can continue to contribute through our work or through our hobbies. And I do want to say the book is specifically about working parenthood, but I think the lessons really apply to any kind of yeah, roles that I we was have. Say, I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So those are the three paths. And I kind of gave a mm. couple examples, but I'm curious for you. I mean, you know, if you remember back to when your kids were young, did you experience some of those benefits? Some of those yeah. that yeah. More thinking back on it. I don't know about, well, I was in it. And I had an extraordinary uh, wife, the mother of my children. We are not together, but we are very close. Uh, and uh, I have to say, she was, of course, the woman is the bulwark of, of, of parenting, just the nature of it. Uh, doesn't mean, like my son has, I have three grandchildren. My son has three three girls, three daughters. He's like the, he's the bulwark now of the family. So, you know, that statement is maybe a little bit erroneous when you really look, get to look at, because I've experienced it with him. But anyhow, that is what happened with me. But I also, when you talk about coming back after a rough day of work and being able to be in that love, that is, uh, an extraordinary experience that that allows you to break free of the role, in my yeah. mind. Yeah. Uh, so you, so you talk about, and this goes back to what we first talked about when we got on about Eastern practices and nomenclature, you know, uh, as against supposedly as against science. And you talk about, but there are psychological practices that can help practices that can help you change your relationship with your thoughts, feeling, and experiences by teaching you how to unhook from unhelpful thinking and better tolerate unavoidable discomforts. Okay, that is straight out Eastern thought, okay? <laughs> totally. Yeah. And and I just want to say that, so what I'm speaking to is a psychological, uh, is a therapeutic package called acceptance and commitment therapy that mm-hmm. very explicitly adopts eastern philosophy yeah. in, and practices into it so it is it's not um we admit that we didn't come up with it. it's just <laughs> yeah. a repackaging <laughs> no it's just more to the okay there is only one thing going on and it's just expressed differently but i like this because it 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 just speaks to the core of my own experience you know with many decades involved in Eastern uh, thought and so on. And and the way this speaks to it, I think, is uh, this podcast, Mind Rolling, is my intent was to 
take some of these incredible teachings and um, get them to a place where people could relate on a day-to-day basis with them. Not, you know, on the ground, okay? Here's my 24-7. You know, how can these particular uh, philosophies and teachings, how can they help me in that sense? So uh, this is why I feel this is uh, right on. Absolutely, yeah. They teach the power of clarity. I'm just going to read a little more because it just emphasizes that. The the power of clarifying values to provide direction and a reason to tolerate discomforts. Okay, that's one of the... We talk about this on on podcasts. I talk about it with everybody, just about. The idea that... Because I was just in India, for instance, and there is no way... You might be able to get away with it like a first-class hotel in Delhi or Mumbai in the big cities where, okay, you'll be fairly comfortable the way that we are comfortable here in the West. As soon as you leave there, it is absolutely the opposite. It is so uncomfortable from from the roads or the trains or going anywhere or the way that we are used to what we are used to in terms of timing and comfort and so on. So I, I just, I got really beat up. Even at this day, I've been going there every year for most of my life, except for COVID and a couple other times. But uh, yeah, I saw so clearly the way in which, you know, the, the way we push away discomfort and we look for what is the most, the softest, most um, undeniably pleasant experience that we can have. So, and then you say, they help you choose intentional actions informed both by your self-knowledge and the science of best practices in work and parenting. Practices from psychology can also help you harness more happiness by learning how to wisely define happiness for yourself. Wisely define. Um, balance different forms of happiness strategically and extract maximal joy from each of your uh, life's roles. So, and then we go further and here is some of the recipe that you gave. Okay. It starts with be here now. It says getting in contact with the present moment. This is what Ram Dass's whole message was about. Be here now. Uh, And I, I keep telling people, this isn't just an iconic phrase that he had that we branded, you know, it's, a reality that absolutely can transform your whole perspective on your life. Then accepting with equanimity, number two, the thoughts, emotions, and experiences you struggle with. And we would call it making friends with suffering, Mm -hmm. going towards. uh, So again, right in in the pocket there, become aware of your thoughts and stories, right? We believe all our thoughts and stories, and that is a prime reason we are in, uh, most of us have trouble on a day-to-day basis. And what's, so the panacea from the East is mindfulness, or be aware of your thoughts and your stories, right? Learning to unhook from unhelpful thoughts and stories when you get caught up in them. And again, the practices that I'm familiar with from the East are practices to allow you to see the way that you are clinging and how to 
reduce that clinging, which is causes the suffering in the first place. This is like, you've really just, it's a Buddhist thing. You've just given the four noble truths. And so taking committed action to move your life in directions that matter to you and, uh, you know, getting your intention in order. Because if you're really, I mean, that's what happened to me. I was so unhappy when I was a teenager. That, I was trying to get from you what was going on when you were a teenager. And all this stuff is thrown at you. It is yeah. so difficult. I mean, your, your children are younger. I'm not sure. How old are they? Yep. They're um, six, nine, and 12. They're getting there. It's about like my grandchildren, actually. And um, yeah, I uh, I think the this prescription is so right on. Um, when I was in this, in the first part of the book, um, and you, these are what you call six core processes: con- psychological, and your term is psychological flexibility. I love that. Speak to it a little bit more. Maybe, t- and, and how did you get through it when, again, mm-hmm. when I was a teenager, it was just, there had to be something else. I was, I got the intention to get out of the maelstrom of, of unhappiness, basically. Yeah. Well, so let me just make sure that I don't take credit for something I don't deserve credit for, which is That's that okay. these processes um, come from a treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, mm-hmm. which again is an evidence-based treatment that incorporates a lot of Eastern philosophy and practices. So it's mm-hmm. sort of taking you know a lot of ancient wisdom into the laboratory and coming up with specific concrete practices that we can teach people who are suffering mm-hmm. in terms of you know, getting hooked on their thoughts and and losing contact with their values and and really feeling that level of, you know, that maelstrom that sort of is unceasing. So these are the kind of practices that we teach in the therapy room and which have been shown to be helpful for people suffering with mental problems and stress and parenting struggles and so on and so forth. I will say that like you, I didn't have these access to these kinds of practices as a teenager. And I I really had a lot of anxiety and and mood swings and I would say it wasn't actually until graduate school where I was really struggling that I got to know some of these practices. And it wasn't even until I became a parent that I started really putting them into practice because things got so difficult and painful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it felt so important to me to be teaching my kids how to be healthier and happier than I felt that I was being. And so that pressure to really go deep into the philosophy and the practice and be willing to rethink some of the ways that I was approaching life um, was was the pressure was high. And what I'm really glad to say is that these practices really are helpful. And to your point, it's not that they undo suffering, right? Just as you uh, experienced on your recent trip to India, suffering is not optional, right? Like, there is discomfort. We cannot avoid it, but we can learn to respond to it more wisely, more skillfully, with more presence of mind. And we can also, through those kinds of practices, access more happiness and engagement and success, right? And that's that's where the skill comes in. You don't avoid the suffering, but you learn how to respond to it more skillfully. And like practices from Ramdas, the practices from acceptance and commitment therapy teach you to do that. They don't undo discomfort. Rather, they teach you to have a different kind of relationship with it, one yeah. that feels more productive, more tolerable, and and where you feel like you have um, a better sense of direction with it all. Mm. 
Well, it is the same, I think, for everybody. When you talked about it, it just got so, you got so very um, unhappy and stressed out that there was no option. You had full intention then, okay, I have to address this. And that's what all of us, no matter what age we are at, that is a significant point in our lives where we go, okay, let's be open to the possibility of a new perspective. And that's part of what this book is about in my mind. And uh, at that point, you start to utilize what you do get. You pick up a book, you meet somebody, um, whatever, however it may happen. Uh, and you, you follow that path. That, that's a very powerful uh, thing in our lives. And uh, yeah, this, this, again, I'm not ascribing this to you, but I'm really, but you're the one who put it, I've never <laughs> seen it before. Okay. So as far as I'm concerned, this is yours. Um, talk about that. You give one example in the book, um, someone that we all love, uh, I think, most of us, uh, certainly I think most of us that are listening to this pod- podcast, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm. and the kind of life she had and how she dealt with, can you talk, can you remember some of what you wrote about her? Yeah, yeah. Because it's so, so inspiring uh, when we all, <laughs> many of us think there's no way with what I have in front of me to support the family and, and have two young children and, and they... You know, right. there's no way that I can uh, make friends with it, basically. Yeah. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg is this really beautiful example because she she encountered a lot of challenge, right? She was one of uh, very few of, you know, 500 uh, members of the class at Harvard that uh, at law school. Her husband, Marty, was a year ahead of her in law school. And when she was in her first year of law school, he was in his second, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and they also had a 14-month-old daughter. So she's not only in law school, she's also a mother, her husband is also very sick, and she managed not only to get through her years of law school, but to really excel, right? And on the one hand, no surprise, because she clearly had a, you know, unparalleled mind and unparalleled work ethic, but she in didn't sleep or something? Yeah, she's, no. she's like didn't Impossible. need much sleep. Yeah. She, so she had a lot of um, resources and traits that helped her to excel in ways that most mortals cannot. But it, wow. in interviews, what she talked about is the benefit that her parenting role offered her legal training. And what she said is, you know, it provided coming home to parent offered a pause, a respite, from the work and perspective that her legal classmates lacked. So she's saying that that balance, that pressure between roles offered her a leg up in some really powerful ways and that it really set her apart from people who didn't have the pressure between roles, which is a really interesting perspective and what I would call a work family enrichment perspective where Mm. she really identified that yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, there are competing demands. And at the same time, that those the competition between those roles offers an opportunity, like a forced break, an opportunity to gain perspective, an opportunity to turn off certain parts of the mind that can grow weary if they focused for too long. 
And I think in this way, it's it's such an amazing example because, you know, she rose into like the top role in the legal world that one could imagine. And she really ascribes part of her success to the fact that she held multiple roles. Mm. And so, again, it's a really different way of thinking about the, the way that our roles exist in relation to one another and a really powerful one. And what I love is it doesn't, it doesn't undo the fact that there is conflict between roles. It's sort of a both and situation, which is again, this sort of non-dualistic thinking because it, you know, it is hard, right? There are challenges and within the challenges, there are opportunities that we can take advantage of. And once we can understand it that way, frame it like, okay, this is hard and there's tension between roles and and it is exhausting and we deserve a, a we deserve and it is beneficial to offer ourselves a tremendous amount of self-compassion during those early years of exhaustion and, you know, in circumstances that are that are really, really hard and sometimes like, you know, unbearable. Let's offer ourselves a recognition that that is a painful thing to endure. And let's appreciate that at times there are opportunities to take advantage of the tension between roles in these really amazing ways. And this is where the social science comes in, because what she's talking about, this perspective and this break, is something that cognitive neuroscience really reveals. So, for example, if you're working hard on a task and you're forced to interrupt it and take your conscious attention away, there are actually creative processes that occur in the unconscious mind that get activated. So if you're stuck on a problem at work and you got to go pick up your kid from daycare, and now you got to think about your kid and listen to their story because you haven't seen them all day, the part of your brain called the default mode network gets active. And that's the part of the brain that can come up with these like aha eureka solutions that and we that we can't access when we're consciously focused on a problem, sort of the Archimedes eureka effect, right? Mm. He was in the bathtub when he came up with this idea about buoyancy, according to myth. Um, <laughs> he wasn't thinking about it consciously. And that's kind of right. the point. So opportunities like that exist because our roles are in tension with one another. So rather than fighting against it, if we can learn how to take better advantage of it and appreciate it while also offering ourselves self-compassion and working to make progress in this society in, in ways that, you know, reduce the toxic nature of work environments and help marriages to equalize and so on and so forth. It's sort of, we, we want to be working on both sides, on the system side, but also taking advantage of the psychological tensions that we can't undo. Mm. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah, really great. You and I'm sure. So you you do work in relationship with couples and so on as part of your mm-hmm. practice. Yeah, I I specialize in in marital treatment and then also I do a lot of parent coaching. So I'm I'm just interested in relationships in general, and that yeah. is you know part of why I got so interested in oh like roles also exist in relationship. I had never thought about that before I became really? a working parent, oh. and then it really dawned on me that you know we think about marriages in these very nuanced, multifaceted ways, but but we don't often talk about our life roles existing in relationship with one another, but they really do. And the more that you think about it, the more you can figure out how how do I want to sort of orient towards that relationship? And and can I modify the way that I organize that relationship in my day-to-day experiences? Mm-hmm. You know, back to Ramdas, uh, he used to uh, marry people. Not a lot, but occasionally. And he, when he was in Maui the last 15 years of his life, he did some of it there. And, but his thing was that when he married two people, he would say, 
you have to consider yourself not just in relationship to each other, but in relation to that which has so many different names and is ineffable, uh, that presence. Call it God if you want. To me, that's like a lot of people have a hard time with that, uh, especially non-dualists and so on. Uh, but he would say that is a triangle and that third connection is you guys relating with that which is our true nature, which manifests itself in so many different ways. And so that was his um, his greatest um, gift to people who came to, to him. And people came to him with problems around relationship and so on. And he'd remind them of that. Is that how does that, does that ring in any way to some of what uh, you might be offer people in terms of relationship issues or, or in terms of deciding to be in a relationship? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of thinking on two levels. I wonder if maybe it relates to this idea of like a higher value, like a core value. And that could be, you know, a spiritual, a shared spirituality, or yeah. it could be, you know, something else entirely, a love of nature or a care for how you live life or a care for how you raise children, something like that. The other thing I'm thinking too is that one one thing that I write about in the book and that I teach in the therapy room is this idea that you know we each come into a relationship with our own history and our own story and when conflict arises we tend to drop into our story right we sort of get very tend to. narrow tend to yeah. it's sort of almost inescapable but the more that we mm. recognize our tendency to do that to drop into like well this is this is my truth and I need to convince you of it mm to recognize that our partner is also dropping into that truth and that the productive path is to together develop a shared story, right? Something that exists beyond the two of you. That is something that exists yeah. almost like in the space between you. Mm. That helps the two of you to move away from a me versus you to an us together encountering life's challenges as a team. So that's always, you know, a, a sort of, goal that I have in the back of my mind as a couples therapist to help people move from an adversarial me versus you position to an us sharing a story and sharing, a, mm. you know, a, a, a status in life, you know, being a team in life and, and sort of moving through the journey together. And I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're talking about, but exactly. But that's sort of what it is mind. exactly. Okay, great. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> that shared whatever, space, if you want to call it, is what, what he was talking about. It's what I understand as what very, it's all, this is all difficult and takes practice. Totally. Um, you know, I again, will say as a couples therapist myself, I still struggle with it because I'm human too. And I'm, mm. you know, I have a marriage and young kids and a job and, you know, it, it's still hard for me. And that's what I'm constantly telling the couples that I see in sessions that, you know, it would make sense that this is hard because this is hard for everyone, but this is the practice, right? It's not, it's, you don't ever finish doing it. It's something you practice through life. Yeah. And that that's why I do love from the East mindfulness or Ram Dass used to call it witness and awareness. Mm. So you really know what your motivations are. You know how you're, you're living in separate in the me versus you. And you start by having some awareness of that, 
through a witness that's not self-judging or any of that. It has to come from a different place. But once that happens, it burns away some of that, I, this is my story and I'm going to live with this, you know, righteousness, you know, which yeah. is the uh, top golden chain, I think they say <laughs> in the East. Totally. Well, yeah. let me ask you this question. How has that been a lesson that you've imparted to your kids? Well, I have to say that their mother and I had, um, we did have that shared space. That's amazing. Um, we did. It was due to my own detriment, detrimental um, attitude back then. I, I, I was not so happy about getting married ultimately because we met in India with this being. And I thought, I'm going to be an enlightened yogi. <laughs> I was so full of shit. It was not believable. Anyhow, and this lasted for quite some time, and it, and, and it had a de deleterious effect on our marriage. But we had that space, and I think, you know, uh, both of our sons, uh, well, the one that has the children, he sure as hell got with the program. You know, he's not attached to the identity that he's in and he enjoys it and he's fully, full on responsible in a way I, I wish I could have been. <laughs> he's that great. So it happened as a result of our acknowledging, she and I acknowledging that space that you're talking about, which is, it's just the exact, it's a, another name. It's just another name, but that shared space where we're, we're, uh, not judging we're not guilty we're we're our intention is there to be together in beyond our individual uh, needs and wants and and yeah. proclivities uh it's that's what we're talking about yeah no absolutely totally yeah and you don't have to like know everything there's this one su yeah. study that i love to <laughs> cite great. which shows yeah. that empathic effort matters more than empathic accuracy for relationship satisfaction. And so mm. that's something that I that's always go great. back to because it's really about caring enough to develop that shared story and 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 making it like a shared project that is an ongoing project that you never finish and you're never perfectly right and you're never perfectly accurate and and that's okay that that's more than okay because what matters is that you care enough to be collaborating with your partner or with your kids mm. on this project of creating that shared sense of values or that shared story or that shared set of goals. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a, and, and it applies, uh, in many ways in which uh, walks of life for sure. There's a great, uh, Zen master, American Zen master named Bernie Glassman. He died a few years ago. He had something called Zen peacemakers and they did a lot of social action they did stuff like take people to um, Auschwitz and, and so on and meditate there and just absorb, you know, yeah. and help transform that suffering. Yeah, he, he, someone to look up. By the way, you guys are doing show notes. Definitely put Bernie Glassman in them because he's just extraordinary. extraordinary. And by the last 10 years, he was very close to Ramdas. And the last 10 years of his life, he was all about not knowing 
He really spent time with people to get them out of the thing that they know. We've done the practice. We've studied the text and so on, and we know. And he was marvelous in the way that he opened up that uh, so that you, you don't need to think that you know. Be an empty vessel and allow the water be, to be poured into it, you know. So that not that. knowing, yeah. Eh? Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about in acceptance and commitment therapy, the value of curiosity and sort of, you know, mm. just being curious about what your experience is, which is exactly what you're saying, sort yeah. of framed a slightly differently. Um, the value of recognizing that there's so much that we don't know that we assume we know. Like we think we know exactly what our kids are thinking. We think we know exactly yeah. what our partner is going to say. Yeah. We think we know exactly what we want and what, you know, what our motivations are. But just to introduce curiosity to it brings an openness and, and an opportunity to learn and grow, uh, that, that can't be available when we are so certain that we know everything. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, and one of the things that we do all the time is project thinking. We know what is going on in the situation. You have a whole thing about reading the room, but have you, t- you got to tell this this uh, personal example um, after your dad died and you were looking for emotional support from a friend. Tell that story because it's <laughs> so great. Uh, yeah, so it's it's in chapter one where I talk about using your values when you feel a bit lost. And the I share this personal example because, you know, I, I had really struggled. So the first chapter is all about my struggle after my father passed or while my father was passing away. And after he passed away, I really struggled with grief in a way that I have never struggled before. And I, and I looked to my friends to be my supports because, you know, my my immediate family was struggling and we had young children. So my husband had his hands full. Um, and one of my very close friends um, sort of dropped the ball in, in my experience, dropped the ball. And I was so sure, right, that she was more selfish than I had originally thought. And so my mind started calling her selfish and self-absorbed and not helpful. And yeah. I decided, you know, I didn't need people like that in my life, right? I was suffering and what I needed was people who were going to be there for me. Um, so when she reached out, I told her, you know, I sort of snippily said, I'm, I'm really busy. And then she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I just have too much going on. And eventually a third friend that, that the three of us are very close reached out to me. And she said, you know, this friend is really upset. She, she feels like you're upset with her and she wants to be there for you. And she's literally losing sleep over it. And she's had a really hard time the past couple of months. She thought that you wanted space and she was also struggling with her own stuff, so my mind calling her a selfish person had turned me in, and a bad friend turned me into a bad friend. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of the paradox, right? It's like when yeah. we label people in these ways that are vilifying, it often turns us into the kind of people that, you know, are, are a bit villainous ourselves. Yeah. And it's the great paradox, right? When we're so sure that we know that somebody else has wronged us and we don't get curious about why they would do that and what they might be struggling with, we lose the opportunity to show up in our own value-aligned yeah. way. Like for me, it's very important to be a kind, compassionate person in the service of protecting myself using these really mean labels. I turned into exactly the opposite of that. And it, exactly as you're pointing to, it was because I was so confident that I had read the situation right. 
And I yeah. didn't introduce curiosity to it at all. Yeah, no. A great story that's also same story, a little bit different again with Ramdas. He went to a meditation course and they he had a roommate and but you're supposed to be silent for however two weeks or whatever it was. So but you know, you're encountering this person going in and out of the room and using the bathroom, whatever it may be. And Ramdas just kept thinking, this person hates me. Mm. He won't, not, not even a glimmer of an eye contact, nothing. And he spent the whole time <laughs> in his meditation practice, the shit was going on in his head. And then the thing ended and where people could talk to him. And the guy comes up to him and says, Ramdas, it is such a pleasure and so much um, grace that I got to room with you. You have been such a teacher for me. He went on about it. And Ramdas just, in his mind, he went, this is so great. I needed this. This is so great. You know, and how often do we do this on a day-to-day basis? I mean, just, oh just look back, Constantly. everybody. It's yeah. unbelievable. Well, I'll tell you, one thing that I do after every single podcast interview that I've done is yeah. my mind goes to this self-critical place of you didn't articulate well, you didn't explain yeah. concepts, the host probably was really frustrated and annoyed, yeah. nobody's going to listen, everyone's going to think it's terrible. And then I'll listen and I'll say, oh, no, it, it sounded okay. And I'll make contact later with the host and it'll be very friendly and lovely. It's yeah. it's amazing how our minds come to these conclusions that have so little basis. And I think it's all in the service of self-protection. Like our minds want us to stay safe. And and by assuming the worst, there's this intention of like, by assuming the worst, I can keep myself safer than if I assume the best, right? (laughs) But, and and that might've worked in pre-modern times where, you know, not keeping yourself safe meant getting eaten by a predator. But, you know, on a podcast interview, it doesn't do me any good to assume the worst. It just tightens me up and makes, Mm. you know, ruins my sleep for the next two nights. It's, but it's wild. There's, there's no stopping the mind. And so the, the answer is these kinds of practices that you teach through your spiritual practice and that I teach through the therapy practices that I have, which is to recognize the chatter of the mind to notice it, to unhook from it, to to observe it with a touch of distance and perspective, not in, in it, rather than getting kind of hooked into it, you mm, know, fully. Exactly, exactly. And a sense of humor. And a sense I of mean, humor the is way very helpful. That we're so <laughs> self-serious about ourselves. Yeah. Is, is, yeah. Is nuts, absolutely nuts. You have something else here that I love, and again has an Eastern analogy. Um, in the East, we would call it spiritual bypass. Here, I get—I can't remember. Uh, so you'd say psychologists have termed uh, the—it's—it's uh, it's about the uh, pretending challenges away, basically, and not uh, not um, facing them whatsoever, not dealing with especially with spiritual aspirants, most especially. Uh, I think there's always that issue of um, just putting it away, this, the psychological stuff that we've never completely dealt with, you know, through therapy or, or through intention even to deal with it through meditative mindfulness practices, we, which was happened to me. I wanted to be, 
you know, I thought I'm a yogi. I'm not a householder. I don't know how this ha- how it happened was because I wanted it to happen, and it took Neem Karoli Babu said to me, "You're going to marry her, right?" And I go, "Okay," but you said marriage brings um, many problems. Okay, very difficult practice uh, relation. He didn't say that, but uh, and he said, "I said so. Why does anybody do it?" Basically, I was saying, "Are you? Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> getting me with this woman?" And and he just looked at me and he went, "It's your desire." So that just broke everything. I realized completely that I did. I loved this woman, and I absolutely knew that it was. It's karmically supposed to happen. Um, but there's so many different ways. And then I went on from there and just denied, denied, denied doing my role, and which cost me in, in the end. Um, but I, so the way in which many spiritual aspirants deal with this kind of stuff is called spiritual bypass. You call it toxic positivity. Mm. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Yeah. I mean, another way to think about it too is emotional avoidance, right? Which is, you know, the the stuff that makes us really uncomfortable, the impulse is to avoid it or to engage in exactly as you are noting toxic positivity, which is this sort of deliberate intention to say, no, everything's fine and to kind of code it over. The problem with toxic positivity and pretending that everything is fine is sort of, you know, for for listeners who are social media followers is that because that isn't the human experience, because we do experience discomfort, we do experience disappointment, we do experience internal tension between roles and conflict, and we feel sad sometimes, we feel guilty sometimes, that if we expect that things should be all good all the time, right? It's all good. (laughs) No worries then we start to imagine that there's something wrong with us and we feel shame and guilt and self-doubt. Like, what am I doing wrong? Am I broken, right? It shouldn't be like this. That's that's the problem with what Western ideas kind of sell to us. Like, And that's driven by a consumer culture. Like, just buy this thing and you'll never feel sad again. Buy this thing and you'll never yeah, feel yeah. unattractive again. Yeah. So that toxic positivity has a real uh, drive that, you know, is is profitable, Um, Mm. but it isn't real, right? We can't actually avoid discomfort. We can't actually avoid making mistakes. We can't actually avoid, um, hurting someone's feelings or, or failing if we, if we care to try anything meaningful. And so the answer to emotional avoidance or toxic positivity is to make space for the discomfort of being human, to to develop, cultivate a willingness to experience the full gamut of human emotions, which includes all the uncomfortable stuff. But if we make space for it and allow ourselves to encounter it, we get a lot of information. We encounter opportunities for growth, developing development of wisdom, resilience, um, self-knowledge, knowledge of others, all these good things. And and this is maybe to your point of what happened in your marriage, we can get in contact with what really matters to us. So this is the values clarification. This is the idea of what, how we want to show up moment to moment, what matters most to us in life. And often what matters most to us in life, being connected to it is inevitably going to bring discomfort. I mean, you think about a close relationship, like if you care about marriage or if you care about your kids, there will be moments of discomfort, like extreme discomfort, without question. 
right? Because you're going to have different agendas than your partner and your kids are going to say something nasty to you because they're in a bad mood. And if we care enough, if we value those relationships enough and we know how we want to show up, we're much better equipped to sort of tolerate those discomforts, to stay engaged and to work within the bounds of what our human experience is as opposed to run away from it. Because when we run away from it, we shut down those opportunities and we shut off the things that really matter to us. And that can, on the one hand, be more comfortable, but it can also lead to an emptier life, a life that doesn't have access to the things that really matter to us. Yeah. Again, another way to put it in the East is as far as your demons are concerned, running away from them is probably not a good idea. Inviting them for a cup of tea is a good idea. Sit down, have your tea, and then move on. In that way, that scary thought or, or that misadventure or that misplaced selfishness, selfishness, it gets, uh, the sting goes out of it. It really does. So yeah, see we full circle here. Yeah, <laughs> full circle. The the reality of of the expression through different means coming to the same conclusions. Yeah. As you're saying, one truth, right? This is it's all you know wine in different bottles, but it's yeah. all the same wine, yeah. right? It's like yeah, we're exactly. we're getting to the same ideas, and I. Again, I just love that modern science really just confirms what ancient philosophers have long known to be true, which is the things that are uncomfortable don't imply that we're broken and aren't to be run away from, but rather to be invited in and and learn from. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap this up, but I can't, here's, here's a way in which I thought, um, because you have a lot of quotes in front of you, the chapters, by the way, we could probably sit here for a couple of hours. I would have loved that. (laughs) I hope we do maintain a friendship. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. This has been so fun. Thank you. But, uh, so here's the closing thing. And, um, it's a quote. Almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. And of course the great Anne Lamott, Who's going to be at the retreat we're doing next week? Is it next no week? No kidding. Yeah. Uh, I'm obsessed Maui. with her writing. She is so funny and wise. <laughs> yeah, she is so great. And and great speaker as well. And she hangs out with... There's a little similarity because, you know, her core is uh, Christianity and she calls herself a Sunday school teacher. And But she's relating with all of us Hindu Buddhists that come to the retreat uh, it's a fun, fun mix. It really is. Uh, by the way, everybody, and because uh, I was going to say, boy, if you wanted to watch, you, Yael, can watch uh, one of Annie's or a couple of Annie's sessions if you so wanted to. You, along with everybody else out there listening, can go to ramdas.org slash retreat. And it's free. And just go in there and they'll get you through the process. So everybody, including you, uh, take advantage. Uh, yeah, no, there's some, uh, she's really quite something. Um, but that reality, um, yeah, if you plug, I'm just, I am so 
uh, well, the, in Ayurveda, rajasic. I mean, I am a doer. I'm going to get stuff done. My whole life, I'm a producer, basically. That's what I've been doing my, in my entire life. And uh, I'm only now getting to the point where I understand about unplugging. We all need to get a relationship with that in this world that we live in right now, right? For sure. Yeah. Unplug there and and the busiest of us need it most. <laughs> yeah. And so. there are creative ways to do that. And this is a chapter in my book. I talk a lot about some of the strategic ways that we can unplug, especially for those who have multiple demanding roles. There mm. are ways, but we have to be a little creative about it. Mm. Yeah. And we can't you you quote Elon Musk in the book or mention him. Something, yeah. No, you don't. I do. You're talking about uh, rest is not work's adversary. Rest yeah. is work's partner. Right. It this is a quote think, from yeah. This is a quote from Alex Sujan Kim Pang, who has a great book called Rest. Uh-huh. Uh huh. No, it made me think of something I read just the other day. Elon Musk sent a, a note to whoever's left at Twitter. <laughs> You've got to be committed to working like a hundred hour weeks and into the night. And he went on about, you know, the work ethic that, you know, he's a maniac. And I just thought, and I was, when I was reading that, I thought, oh my God, this is the essence of why we are in so much difficulty these days. You know? Yeah. So everybody take rest. In an India, it's called Aramse. I don't know how many times it was repeated to me. Okay, we went around, we did this. You'll take rest now, right? It's like it's built in. They know, you know. Uh, well, we're learning. And yeah. thanks to you and this great book, Work, Parent, Thrive, Yael Schoenbrunn, we are getting some really great uh, wisdom. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy we met. And yes, we have to do more stuff and potentially uh, get you to come to one of our retreats and so where are you again are you in you're I'm in just east? outside of Boston Boston right yeah good okay because we do something on the east coast in the summers uh, in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina mm. so anyhow we'll talk about that later but again thank you for being here everybody this is mind rolling on be here now network go to be here now network.com and there's a plethora of incredible teachers from Jack Cornfield to Sharon Salzberg to Ramdas to Alan Watts. It's quite something. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Yeah.